God, faithful man of God. First Timothy chapter 4, and I want to read verses 1 through 5. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidden to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. As we see this morning, we're going to talk about a faithful man of God. A faithful man of God. I don't know about you, but the scripture is very clear that it says in latter times, many things will be different than they are now. Uh, There is going to be a time when those will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits. And we see that all around us. But I would challenge all of us in here, not just men, but also women, those of you that know Jesus Christ as your Savior, to be faithful to the Word of God, to be faithful to following God, to be faithful to being committed to God in everything that we say and do. So we're going to be getting into this this morning, and I trust that you'll follow along and you'll be able to really ask, ask the question, are there areas of my life that I'm starting to let slip? And let me just tell you, it is a gradual slip, but it is an intentional slip when we allow it. And we're going to see that from Scripture in just a moment. So if you would, let's look to the Lord in prayer, and uh, then we'll get started in the message this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. We thank you so much for, uh, Lord, just the words of that last song we sang, that you are so good. And Lord, we are highly favored. We are anointed. You said that we are your peculiar people. And I ask God that you'd help us to realize that as we've partaken of communion this morning, Lord, as we do once a month, Lord, as we consider what you've done for us on the cross of Calvary. I ask God that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, may your Holy Spirit work in our hearts to draw us closer to you this morning. And I ask God, if there be one here today, Lord, that does not know you as your Savior, might today be the day of salvation for them, Lord. And then, Lord, Lord those of us who, uh, Lord, maybe we've made some steps in our lives that are leading towards compromise, that are leading towards depart, Lord, I, departing, I ask God that you would just draw us back and, Lord, allow us to see, uh, Lord, what it means to walk with you, to follow you completely, Lord. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at that passage there in First Timothy chapter 4, There's a couple obvious things I want you to see there in the passage. And as we look at it, you see, first of all, this is now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. I don't know about you, but I've seen this quite a bit in the last couple of years. In fact, a couple of years ago, I was in a bookstore. And in this bookstore, the title of the book was How to Survive Life After Faith. And it was the idea that all this following Jesus Christ and giving your life and a commitment to him was all just a big joke. And a guy actually wrote a, an inch thick book on how to survive life after faith. And I thought to myself, wow, that's pretty audacious, pretty bold to actually write a book of how to overcome what you once committed to. But we're also seeing it here in the last couple of years that uh, even just recently, a guy by the name of Josh Harris, some of you have probably heard of him. Uh, he wrote the famous book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and really pushed the idea of courtship dating rather than just regular dating and so forth. But he came out and said, well, everything that I believe was just not true. I'm not there anymore. Uh, I'm walking away from my faith. Well, that's exactly what God's word said would happen. And we see this all the time. There are those who are walking away from the faith. But the idea of departing is really several things here. It means to withdraw, to withdraw. And I want you to think of yourself as being a part of a group. I'm with a body. I'm with a local assembly. I'm with the body of Christ. And I withdraw from that body. In other words, then there's a, a falling away. 
there's an abandonment to that group. I choose to abandon that group to become apostate. Now, here's what's the interesting thing, and I know as I say every, every once in a while, I'll say, you know what, if, if you understand what it says in the Greek, and I know no, nobody cares about that, but it's a deliberate stepping away. In this word, there is a deliberateness about stepping away from this group. So it's not the idea, unless you just think in your mind that, well, you know, somebody came in and persuaded him, and, well, you know, he just didn't quite understand, and so he kind of took a, took a step back and went a different direction. That's not the idea here. The idea here in this passage is that it is a deliberate step away from the body and going into a direction that they know is not right. And uh, God's word is very clear about that. So it says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And you don't see this in too many different in places in Scripture, but in this particular sense of the word, but it's the idea, instead of being led by the Holy Spirit, they are being led by deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now here's what's interesting about the world that we know it. We often hear the excuses when we do something wrong, when we step into a direction that we know is not pleasing to God, you'll oftentimes, especially with a younger believer, you'll say, well, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you do it. Uh, Romans 8 is very clear. It says, they that mind the things of the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, right? And they that mind the things of the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. So what that word tells us in Romans chapter 8 is that it is a deliberate choice every day to decide where we're going to set our minds. So the devil didn't make you do it. Your flesh did it. And it says every man is drawn away when he's enticed by his own flesh. So the bottom line is we choose to do what we know is oftentimes not right. So we don't have anyone to blame but ourselves. And we can't say the devil made me do it, because let me just tell you one other thing, just in case you didn't know. The devil is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. You see, God's Word tells us that there's only one devil, and he's not omnipresent. So there's one devil and many fallen angels that act as his demons, act as his minions, act as his uh, uh, cohorts in crime, so to speak. But instead of being led by the Spirit... They are led by deceiving spirits and, doc and, and doctrines of demons. So what does that tell us, folks? Every day as we get up, as we start our day, as we go about our day, we need to get into the mindset that we are going to let the Holy Spirit guide us, direct us, uh, help in all of our actions, our reactions. And then deceiving has the idea of being hypocritical. And this is kind of interesting as I was studying this out this week. Being hypocritical. We know what that means. Uh, how many of us have ever met a hypocrite? I don't want you to raise your hand on the next question. How many of us have been hypocritical at times? You know, the bottom line is, I think we all fit into this category. But the idea of being deceitful is the idea of being hypocritical. You see, a hypocrite really is one, if we understand it correctly, it's the idea of being in a play. You're on stage, and while you're on, in that play on stage, you have a costume on. And while you are in costume, you are wanting everybody to assume that you are that character. You are really telling everybody, I'm not this person behind the, behind the, the, the costume, I'm, I'm somebody else. That's the idea of hypocrisy. That's the idea of deceitfulness. We are trying to deceit. And the devil and his demons are trying to deceive us and allowing us to be hypocritical. In other words... They, or in other words, these who are departing, they know better, but choose deliberately to leave the faith. That's the really important factor there. See, every day I'm choosing to live for God. 
Every day I'm choosing to love my family. Every day I'm choosing to do certain things that will have certain consequences, right? So every day I am choosing to be led by the Spirit, not to be led by the demons or, 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 the, or the devil, but to, to, uh, to stay faithful to what we know is right and what God expects of us. So these who are departing have a consciences that have been seared. So in other words, here's the idea here. Um, it says basically that over and over the Holy Spirit has convicted them that what you're doing is wrong. It's that still small voice. It's that voice in the back of our head that says, you probably shouldn't be doing that. Hey, it's that voice that says, you know, that's probably not the best decision you can make today. It's that still small voice that says, really, I think you need to steer away from this and go more towards this. And God's word says that it is possible that you can say no so many times. You can suppress the spirit so many times. You can just say, I'm not going to listen so many times. And finally, it will sear your conscience to the point that the Holy Spirit says, fine. You're going to make choices. They're going to have these consequences, and you're going to have to endure them. So they've had their conscience seared, and so now they are living for themselves. And Paul had warned the Ephesian elders that the false teachers would come into the church. It was no surprise that they would come, and some of these men would walk away from the faith. He absolutely said that they would come. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, and verses 20. Uh, 8 through 31 says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He said over and over and over again. He said, I warned you. There is going to be a time that I will not be here. And when I am gone, you notice what he calls them? Savage wolves. He said, there will be those who will come in. They will be like savage wolves. And they will seek to destroy. They will teach perverse things. He warned them. Why did he warn them? so that they could continually stand guard. So they could continually make up their mind that they are going to stand for what they know is right. So that they could stand for what God would have them to stand for. And folks, you've heard the phrase before that those who stand for nothing will fall for anything. So we have to make up our minds that we are going to stand. And that's part of my job as a preacher. And it's part of my job as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. To know that there are going to be those who will step in and they are going to teach wrong things. And that's why God's word also reminds us to be as the Bereans were. To search the scriptures daily to see if what is said is so. So in other words, it's not just the idea of just taking carte blanche, whatever the preacher says, right? It's the idea that I'm going to study the word of God for myself and come to the conclusion that what he's saying is actually right. And if it's not, we stand up against it, right? So we are to be committed to the Word of God, committed to letting the Holy Spirit guide our lives and to do what is right. So Paul warned these Ephesian elders that false teachers would come in. So we have to understand this, that Satan is an imitator. He's an imitator. You know, every once in a while we come across verses in the Scripture, and, and if you're like me, maybe you've read the Bible through a couple times in your lifetime. Has anybody ever read the Bible from cover to cover? Have you ever read something cover to cover and you come back and say, wow, I know I've read this before, but it didn't jump off the page like it, like it did this time. This is one of those phrases. In, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, it says this, that Satan transforms himself into a what? Angel of light. 
Now, it's amazing in our culture that we have a lot of ideas about angels. You know, everybody's got a guardian angel. Everybody's got their angel watching over them and protecting them. We have this idea that angels are just these beautiful little beings. They have pretty little wings. And, and well, you know, they're just gorgeous. Interesting, isn't it, how we can come to those conclusions? But those gorgeous, pretty little angels. God's Word tells us that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. Why? So he can continue to deceive. He's an imitator. And not only that, it says that he has uh, ministers who ministers uh, 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 into ministers of unrighteousness. I made a mistake on there. It's unrighteousness. Uh, so it's the idea here what? He has Satan, and he is going to transform himself into an angel of light. And then he has his demons who are ministers of unrighteousness. They're trying to blend in. They're trying to imitate. They're trying to do what they can do to cause us to make a decision to leave the faith. They seek to imitate, and they seek to deceive, because that's what they do. But Paul didn't just warn uh, the Ephesians. He also warned the church at Colossae. Uh, So in Colossians uh, chapter 2, beginning with verse 8, I want to read several of these verses because I think they're important to understand. Beginning with verse 8, it says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. If you were to stop and not go any further than verse 8, that is a mouthful. That is quite something to understand. He says over and over, beware. What's the idea of being aware? Be on guard. Be ready. You better know the truth so that when counterfeit comes at you, you'll know that it's not real, that you know it's not of God, that it's not from the Bible. So he says, beware lest anyone cheat you through the philosophy of an empty deceit. And the idea of cheat means that there's something that God, God wants for you, something that he has for you, and you're being cheated out of it. Why? Because we're falling into the deceitfulness that's being taught. So he says, beware lest you fall into that category. So beware uh, uh, Lest anyone cheat you through the philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Uh, Going on, verse 10, it says, And you are complete in, in, in him who is the head of all principality and power. You see, we find our fullness in him. We find completeness in him. Anything less than that is going to be less than that. It's going to be deceitfulness. It's going to be following the devil. Verse 11 says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and putting off by the body the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So what's he saying here? Once again, there was a decision that was made. When you stood in the waters of baptism, you formed a cross, right? And as you went under the water, you did what? You were buried with him in likeness of his death. And then as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we were raised in newness of life. But there's something more to it then. He says that as we crucified our old flesh, everything that characterized who we were apart from Christ has been put to death, right? So now we're raised in newness of life. Those things that used to be a part of us before we had Christ should not be in our life now that we do have Christ. So he's very clear about this. And it says, verse 13, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh has made alive together with them, having forgiven your, all your trespasses. We've talked about this once again. We're coming into hunting season. 
And uh, we realized that, uh, at least I did as a kid growing up, I always thought the bigger deer were on the other side of the property line. And if you're a hunter, you understand that phrase. Because everybody knows that I have these acres that I can hunt on, but all the big deer are on the other side of that no trespassing sign. Now, it's kind of funny because oftentimes I'd run into the guys on the other side on the fence row, and they thought all the big deer were on my side. I said, no, they're on your side. But no, it's the idea that you were born across the line in sin. That's what it means to trespass. Here's a boundary line, and you stepped over it. And God says, you are born in trespasses and sin. You are born on the wrong side of the line. And what he does through salvation is this brings us back. So going on here, we see a lot of things here. So it says, having wiped out, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. So what's he saying? He goes, I am more powerful than they. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He says, you have the power to overcome. You have the ability to do what's right. Don't make the decision to step away. Don't make the decision to abandon the faith. Don't make the decision to not be committed. You need the Holy Spirit to do that. He says, you have all that you need to do that. So going on to verse 18, says, let no one defraud you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from which all the body is nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase which is from God, he says over and over, he says, stay connected. Do what's right. Be involved. We could go on. But I want to end up with verse, down verse 23. He says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. We can't live in the flesh. You live in the flesh, you're going to fail. You live in the flesh, you're going to fall. So he says here, not only is it in our text here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, um, verse 3 says, Forbidden to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So, um, <coughs> as they are stepping away, and he says, speaking these lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared. So a couple of the things that they jumped on, it says, well, you're not allowed to marry. Uh, these false teachers were combining Jewish legalism and Eastern asceticism. And so the first thing they were doing is they were falsely teaching that they could not marry. I don't know about you, but God says that marriage is good. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, uh, he said, It is not good for man to be alone. And every man says what? Amen. Those of you that have a you know, good wife. Uh, you know, bottom line is we need our wives. We, that's why God designed it, right? He said it is a good thing. And so... These false teachers are coming along and saying, well, you can't marry. You can't really be a, you know, a real uh, uh, teacher of the faith if you're, if you're married. You know, bottom line is, you, you can't do that. And he says, no, because in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus himself approved of marriage. And did not Jesus himself says, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave, right? Because he says it's a good thing. And we understand that. Even though it's a good thing, and we understand also according to Matthew 19, verses 10 to 12, it may not be his will for everyone to marry, but for those of us who he does, Allow it. it is a good thing, right? And then he goes on to say, furthermore, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that Paul affirmed the biblical foundation of marriage. So marriage is a good thing. So these false teachers are coming in, trying to put everybody under the Old Testament law once again, and he says, no, wait a minute, that's not true. God installed the, the whole uh, 
uh, the whole foundation of marriage in Genesis. He said it was a good thing, and he put his stamp of approval upon it. Paul put his stamp of approval on it, and he said, this is a good thing. He says, you can't teach that any longer. And then he says, well, if I can't get him there, I'll try something else here. So forbidden to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So he said, well, not only can you, should you not marry, you shouldn't eat certain foods. Well, that's not true either. Because we know that God was very clear about that as well. In Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23, he says this. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he had entered a house away from the crowd. His disciples asked him concerning the parable. He said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Now think about this. He's, just stop right there. I know you want to keep reading, but don't just for a minute. He says, wait a minute. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles. It's what comes out of the house. Because why? Out of the heart, the abundance of the mouth, what? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaks. So what comes out of your mouth is what defiles. You know, and I found out that you know, there are things that are very hurtful. There are things that are very cutting and demeaning that can come out of our mouth. So he says, not the food that you put in, it's the words that come out that actually defile. So he goes on to say in verse 19, because it does not enter the heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. He said, food comes in, it's purified. It's going to go out. But the reality is, the words that come out, that's another subject. Because words are hurtful. Words can demean. Words can break hearts. So it's not what goes in, it's what comes out. And he's trying to teach him this. So verse 20 says, And he said, What comes out of man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murderers, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. So it's not what we put in as far as food. He said, that's been purified. So once again, false teachers, you're wrong. Um, so in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, 6, is also teaches that Christ freed us from the law. And you know what that means? Enjoy the steak. Amen? Bottom line is, it's not wrong. Enjoy it. But they wanted people to walk away from what they knew was truth. They wanted people to be deceived by what they knew was false teaching. And he says, whether it's marriage, whether it's eating uh, food, bottom line is, disregard that. And uh, know that God said that the food has been purified. So here's the real issue. Um, everything that God made was, what? Good. In fact, when he came to man, he said it was very good. And so we have to understand that everything that God made was good. So we're to enjoy it. We're to make it a part of our lives. Yeah, there's limits. I've often used the humorous little statement that, you know, if one cheeseburger is good, three is better, right? You know, one hot dog is good, three is better. Um, bottom line is, yeah, there's, there's limitations, right? So we're not to gorge ourselves. We're not, God's Word tells us in 1 Corinthians we're not to be brought under the power of anything. So the reality is we shouldn't be addicted to anything, whether it be Mountain Dew or coffee or tea or anything else, foods. All things that are given to us to richly enjoy in moderation. But what God made is good. And we need to enjoy it as such. So, 
Jesus affirmed that all foods were clean. However, consider Romans 14. You know, the bottom line is we should not use our liberty to eat and drink to hurt or destroy a weaker Christian. If there are those around us that uh, struggle with certain addictions, we shouldn't do it in front of them. Bottom line is that's just being considerate. That's just showing love. That's being kind. And so we need to guard against that and uh, make, that, make sure that we're not purposely doing things that would cause another brother to fall. So the real issue is food set apart or devoted to God should be done to his glory. What does 1 Corinthians 10.31 say? Whether therefore you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So the reality is that we ought to consider what we're doing in light of his glory. In other words, you know, I, I still find this interesting. I, I read this a couple years ago in a devotion, a devotional that I bought about 1 Corinthians 10.31, and I can't get it out of my mind that God would use Paul to write this. He says, whether therefore you eat or drink, what is it that we do more in life more than eating and drinking? Maybe sleep. I knew there had to be one, right? But in reality, the thing that we do most of our life is eat and drink. I mean, most of us, three times a day, you get up in the morning, you got to have something. You know, you go around lunchtime, give or take an hour, you got to have something. And, you know, you get home from work after a long day, you got to have something, right? And, and then you're snacking in between, and you got this snack and that snack, and then you got to have a bowl of ice cream before you go to bed, right? I mean, some of you. So the bottom line is, it's just like we eat and drink constantly in our culture, don't we? It's not like most of the third world countries where they might get one meal a day and they just kind of get what they can. You know, they're scraping the, the bottom of the rice bin and, or the flour or the mush or whatever it is that they're using. We eat and drink nonstop. And Paul uses something so significant, so maybe even insignificant in some of our minds. Whether you therefore you eat or drink, do it how? To the glory of God. I say, man, can I say that I'm eating and drinking to the glory of God, or is that fourth burger just really looking appealing right now? Man, I know it's easy, isn't it? I just didn't do the glory of God. I did the glory of Ken. It was good. It looked good. It tastes good. And I got a philosophy with burgers. The messier they are, the more gooey they are, the more mayo, mustard, and ketchup that squirts out, the better it tastes. Right? Anybody? I don't care how big a mess it makes. The messier, the better. Can we say that everything in life is done to the glory of God? So we're not to use our liberties to eat and drink, to hurt or destroy a weaker vessel. We're to do everything that we do so that God will be glorified through our actions. So forbidden to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to receive. Here's the point. Ministers should believe and know the truth. You see, the idea in the context here of 1 Timothy is that he's talking about a minister who has chosen to depart from the faith. He's allowed these deceitful things to come into his heart and his mind, and he's walked away. He's, been, he's, he's, he's left his commitment. And really, it applies to all of us as men of God. It applies to all of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, if we made a commitment to him. But here's the question. Ministers should believe and know the truth, right? I mean, that, that's what you would expect of a minister, right? And all of us that know Jesus Christ. So how can ministers truly believe and know the truth? Well, I think we need to consider Acts 6, uh, Verses 1 through 7. And here's the idea. Um, it's quite different in different scenarios how pastors minister. Um, before I read this, just for a minute, it, it's, it's really unique how pastors minister in different circles. You see, a pastor will minister different in a church of 85 to 100 than he will in a church of 400. 
A church will, a pastor will minister different in a church of 400 than he will in a church of 1400. And a church of pastor ministers different in a church of 1400 than he does in a church of 4000, right? Because there are different scenarios, different settings, different circumstances that allow a pastor to to differentiate in how he ministers. But I find in a smaller church, it's it's more of a smorgasbord. You know, um, it's kind of funny. My friend in uh, Indiana at Harrison Center Church. Um, he got ye- yelled at and railed on by his parishioners all the time. You know why? Because his predecessor, if he noticed the light bulb was up, up there in the top chandelier, he was the first one to do it every time. If, if uh, something was, if there was trash rolling around in the yard out front, he was the first one to go get it. Uh, if, if there was something broken in the in the ladies' restroom, he was the first one to go repair it. But then when he came in, he said, "Man, that's not my, that's not me." You know, I, I like to study. I, I mean, I want to spend 40 hours a week studying the Word. And I want to just get into it. I want to dig deep. I want to make it practical to everybody I'm talking to. And the people began to yell at him and rail on him because, well, there's, there's a toilet not working right in the men's room. Pastor, I mean, is that, is that, is that why aren't you dealing with this? And, and the floor needed vacuumed, and it didn't get vacuumed as much as what the previous pastor did. And... It wasn't long before, but there was really a bunch of people who were upset with him because he wasn't taking care of the grounds. Hmm. I wonder what Scripture has to say about that. Oh, it, it does say something about it. Let's look at this. Uh, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude and the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we would leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, ask, or seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permenaeus, and Nicholas, and a proselyte from Antioch whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So what it was the commitment of the pastors? To preach and to pray. But when he's busy doing everything else, guess what gets neglected? The preaching and the praying. And when that gets neglected, guess what happens? You're not getting grounded in the faith so that any deception is starting to wear on your minds and, well, I wonder if I should do this. I wonder if I should do that. Here's the deal. If you're a banker, I've been told this, and I don't know because I've never been a banker, but I've heard the stories and the illustrations and the object lessons, probably like many of you have. It usually starts with a question like this. How does a banker know counterfeit money from real money? They're so engrossed in feeling and touching and handling real money that when counterfeit money comes, it stands out, right? And can I say for all of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we ought to be so ingrained with what's truth, so ingrained with what's right and biblical and truth from God's Word that when anything that jumps off the page that's not, that we hear, that we've received, that somebody has spoken, if it's not truth, it just jumps out. Because we know the truth so well. And that's the idea behind being a pastor, is that we want to be grounded in truth. As men of God, we want to be grounded in truth. And that just takes time. In uh, 
Sometimes, uh, in fact, in the last couple of weeks, someone said, well, Pastor, how many hours do you spend on a message? And I said, what do you think I spend? Big difference from where it was to what they thought it was. So what do you do all week? Are you kidding me? I got the best job under the sun. I work one day a week. <laughs> Bottom line is, what do we do? Study and pray. At any given time, I could get three, four texts, five texts an hour sometimes. Someone saying, hey, pastor, pray for. And I want you to know, as soon as that text comes, immediately, right then and there, I take a moment and pray. Because that's what God has called us to. It says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Why? So that we are committed and that we don't be um, easily forsaking what we know is right. So, here's a question I want to close with this morning. What can we take away from the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4? He said, well, pastor, if it deals with pastors, then you've got to take with it yourself. But really it has to do with all of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior. All of us who are committed to the Word of God. Those of us who have put our faith and trust in Him. If we're all going to be faithful people of God, well, the first thing is that we need to be committed to being led by the Spirit. The bottom line is this, folks. Every day you have a choice. Every day I have a choice. But every day we all have a choice whether we're going to live in the flesh or live in the Spirit. It's really easy to live in the flesh. In fact, you don't have to really plan to do it. It just kind of happens, doesn't it? I have to plan to live in the Spirit. But living in the flesh, that just comes way too easy. Way, way too easy. Anybody else empathize with that? The flesh is really easy. It only takes a moment to blow up at somebody who irritates you. It only takes a second to have a wrong thought and say, I want to deck that person for saying that. It only takes a millisecond. <sighs> right? It's really easy to live in the flesh. But he says in the latter times, many will depart from the faith. Why? Because they're being influenced by doctrines of demons and devils. The bottom line is, you need to be controlled by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Satan would love nothing more than to creep into your life, get a foothold into your life, and say, hey, that's not really right. Or that's not really true. That's not how you do this. We have to be continually committed to being led by the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that doesn't happen by accident. The truth of the matter is that you have to make that commitment daily by saying, Lord, please control me. Lord, help me not to be filled with self. God, destroy my flesh so that your spirit would be seen in me. That's when we can say like Paul, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And he said, in the life I now live, I live by faith, by faith in the Son of God who what gave me life. Bottom line is, John the Baptist, he says, I'm not the light. I'm sent to be an image bearer of that light, to bear witness of that light. So when people see us, do they see Ken Todd or do they see a reflection of Christ? Put your name in there. It starts by making a commitment to being led by the Spirit. Number two, we need to be committed to truth. Being committed to truth, not allowing your conscience to be seared. When the Holy Spirit works in your heart and says, hey, you need not go there. We need to listen. Because I'm going to follow truth. When, the, when our flesh says, hey, uh, I, I want to do this because it makes me feel good. And, and the Holy Spirit's saying, uh-uh, not right now. That's going to lead down the wrong path. And we listen to it. And we commit ourselves to truth. We need to be committed to truth. And, and folks, let me just say, there's, there's religion all around us. Isn't there? I mean, just turn the TV on any given night of the week. There's all kinds of religiousness on the TV. A lot of religion that points you to a certain direction 
that makes you certain feel a certain way. I mean, there, there's a religion, there's a denomination for everything under the sun if you want it. Literally. You want to go get wasted every Saturday night and come to church on Sunday? Man, there's a church that says, hey, that's fine, as long as you don't just bring it into church on Sunday. You want to live like the world and watch whatever you want and do how, live life however you want? There, there's churches for that. They're not good churches, but they make you feel good. There's churches for everything under the sun. But to be committed to truth, that's a different subject. So I want to stand before God and hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because we're choosing to live by truth. I'm not going to get side wrapped or wrapped up and sidelined by, by things that I know is, is not of God. My mind is made up. I'm going to do what's right. And then number three, we need to be committed to being set apart to God in prayer. The last part of that text there in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5 says this, For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. The word sanctified literally means set apart. So, being set apart to God in prayer. He says, I can marry, I can drink this food, I'm doing it with thanksgiving, with a pure heart before God. Bottom line is, I want to know what's truth. I want to stand there, I want to live there, I want to be committed to it. So all of us need to make a commitment to being led by the Spirit, to being committed to truth, being committed to being set apart to God. And what's the word set apart means this? It means I'm no longer living for self, I'm living for God. Because this life is not about me and what I want. It's literally about God and what He wants to do in and through me, right? If we believe that, then we're set apart for His service. And uh, that's what God would be pleased with. So as we look at this passage, He goes on, and uh, we're going to continue to look at verse 6 and following next week. But here's the idea. When we submit to what God wants, He blesses us. He blesses our endeavors. He, bless, he blesses our commitments. That's what I want. I'm not filling in the blank and saying, God, you have to do this if I do this. I'm simply saying, God, I'm committed. And he says, I'll honor that commitment. He can do it however he wants. But there's blessing in doing what God has called us to do and to be. Um, I love it because you go on and says, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourishing the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have been carefully followed he says, that's a blessing to be able to instruct in this way. So this week, let's be committed to being led by the Spirit. Let's be committed to sticking to truth. And let's be committed, number three, to being set apart to God in prayer. Let's pray.